Hello. I've reached the age when the temptation of an easy life is very attractive. I've got some money saved up. I'm reasonably healthy, so I could live, well, so easily. Leisure, fine food and wine, four holidays a year. I've earned it. But how do I actually live? 45 minutes of strenuous exercise every morning, a demanding job requiring my old brain to learn new knowledge and skills. I decided to have another child late in life with all the joys and challenges that brings. I even volunteered to find time to squeeze in making this podcast for my old employers at the RSA. Yet, economists tell me that everything I do is based on satisfying my desires, including the desire to minimise unnecessary effort. So why do I choose the pain, the exhaustion, the pressure? And why, having made these choices, do I so often complain about it? It sounds like I need to rethink my ideas of pleasure, pain, maybe even the meaning of life. Fortunately, I've just read a book designed to help me think more clearly. I'll be discussing that book with its author on this edition of Bridges to the Future. This is Bridges to the Future, the big ideas podcast brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to welcome Paul Bloom, who's Professor of Psychology at University of Toronto and the author of several best-selling books, including his latest, The Sweet Spot, Suffering, Pleasure and the Key to the Good Life. Paul, welcome. How are you? I am great. Thank you for that introduction. It's really something. <laughs> well, you know, it was a book that made me reflect on my life a great deal, which I guess was was part of your purpose. So, so, so I'm going to start, at the risk of being solipsistic, I'm going to start in that way. I want you to help me understand, Paul. You know, I'm 61. I've got a good pension. I don't, I know, why aren't I just taking things easy? So help me explain to me why I choose the suffering that I choose. And also, why do you think I complain about it so much? <laughs> you're you're, uh, you're exactly the person. I wouldn't say the person I wrote the book for. You're the person I wrote the book because I was very curious about people like you. And in the end, people like me, like all of us, which is why do we choose to suffer? So there's sort of an answer which your economist would give, which is sometimes we choose to suffer because we have to, because it's it's a route to things we want. You know, if you're taking care of a baby, you better wake up in the middle of the night and feed it. You know, if you if you need the money for a job, you got to take the A15 to the city and work hard and all that stuff. And that doesn't need much explaining. But I'm very interested in chosen suffering. And you gave a few examples. We often get pleasure out of exercise. We like hot baths. We like frightening movies. And then at a deeper level, we often choose larger projects that bring us struggle and anxiety and difficulty, but we get something out of it. It's part of a life well lived. Now, I haven't answered yet why you complain about that. <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. And, and I think maybe I complain about it because it is effortful. That's the point, which is you know, one of the things you deal with early on in the book, Paul, is you deal with this terrible circularity of the kind of argument that says, well, you, you do everything for pleasure. And then when you point out something which really is not pleasurable, like me doing my sit-ups every morning, then the the kind of simplistic uh, economists will say, well, that's because you're getting pleasure in a different... In the end, it's still pleasure. It's just that you're getting pleasure in a different kind of way or for a different kind of purpose. And, and that argument, it really doesn't take us anywhere at all, does it? It doesn't. So, so let's just step out of that. Let's step out of the broad question of how to define pleasure and all of that. And just, just ask the question... Why do we 
so often seek out activities that involve effort and struggle and pain. You know, but little, oh, fine, we get something out of it. But what do we get out of it? Where's the reward? Now, in some cases, again, we have kind of a simple answer. You might do your sit-ups because you want abs of steel to impress people or to be healthy or whatever. But a lot of people do things like they train for marathons and triathlons. They're in fine shape already, but they get something out of the difficulty. And once you start thinking this way, you think of a hundred examples, everything from doing crossword puzzles and, and word games to the fact that many of us get a lot of pleasure, you could call it, going to movies that terrify us, reading books that make us cry. And then, of course, there's the fact that somebody who could live a perfectly comfortable, pain-free life seeks to do the sort of things you're describing yourself doing. Call it pleasure, don't call it pleasure, I don't care. But the question remains, why do we do it? And one of the important concepts in the book is that there are two different types of happiness. And I'm aware of this because, you know, here in Britain, we have what's sometimes called the happiness unit. David Cameron, our former prime minister, is very interested in kind of measuring people's well-being and all of that. So, you know, I'm aware of those ideas. But tell us about these kind of two different ideas of happiness, one which is the happiness in the moment and the other which is a kind of deeper and broader idea of happiness. Right. So, so sometimes you ask people, what do you want? And people often say, well, I just want to be happy. I want I want a good life. I want a happy life. But happiness can mean two very different things. And we tend to use the term interchangeably. And one way to illustrate this is talk about the research. So some experiments have you walk around, basically an iPhone that goes off randomly. And when it goes off, you're supposed to answer, how good a time are you having right now? How much pleasure are you having? And if it goes off a thousand times, we could average them. And that's your average happiness defined in terms of pleasure. But another sense is, I look at you right now and I ask you, you know, with your whole life, think about it. How happy are you? Is your life going well? And you give me an answer to that too. Now, it could have been that these answers would turn out to be the same. And the answers are, are related. If you're high in one, you tend to be high in the other. But they're different. There's a lot of people walking around who say, I'm very happy with my life, even if the day-to-day -day pleasures are small, less than average. And a lot of people who have a lot of day-to-day -day pleasures but say, I'm not so happy with my life. And I think this tells us something kind of interesting, which is there's many different things you might try to maximize. You might be a hedonist and try to maximize moment-to-moment -moment pleasure. And I think we all do that to some extent. But you might also have broader goals in mind. One of the things I argue in my book is what I call, following other people, motivational pluralism, which says that we want many things. We want pleasure. But we also want purpose and meaning. We want morality. Some of us want transcendence. And in the two different kinds of happiness, you see these different notions of a good life at war of one another. Depending on how you ask it, you could maximize one thing or maximize the other. And how rational are we in all of this, Paul? To, to what extent, as it were, are the decisions that we make to suffer or to avoid suffering based upon a kind of misunderstanding of what really works for us. I'm thinking really here of kind of behavioral psychology in terms of the insights which suggest that, for example, we have a very kind of poor discount rate. And so, you know, we'll do something in the short term which works for us, but it doesn't work for us in the long term. So in assessing these things that make us happy, to what extent is are we deluded in the choices that we make? So it's a surprisingly hard question to ask how rational we are. 
Because rationality is, you know, what do we mean by rationality? Well, one thing is to be rational is to use logic and facts and reason to achieve a goal. So are we rational? Well, it depends what we want. If somebody decides to give up happiness to do good in the world and they want to be a moral person, then they're being totally rational. If someone doesn't care about morality, then maybe they're making a mistake. Rationality applies not to the goals themselves, but to sort of how we get there. But there are certain ways in which I think we're not very rational. I'll give you one example. And this isn't the kind of book that to give people advice. You know, I, I want to talk about what I find interesting and explore some interesting discoveries. But I do have one bit of advice about how people are irrational, how they could fix it. And it has to do with research on people who want to be happy. So sometimes people say, I want to be happy. And whatever sense of happiness they mean, normally they mean kind of more of a pleasurable sense. And what they do is they seek out happiness. One of the more robust findings from the psychology of happiness is that seeking out happiness, trying to be happy, is in an interesting way self-defeating. There is a strong relationship between people who say, I spend a lot of my time trying to be happy, happiness is important, and people who are not happy. Apparently, somewhat paradoxically, the best way to be happy is, for the most part, not trying to be happy, but seeking out other goods. It was John Stuart Mill who first came up with this idea, wasn't it? So John Stuart Mill, I, yes, a lot of this then was anticipated. You, much of my book could be found in the Enlightenment philosophers. And honestly, many of the insights that I talk about involving the value of suffering and the importance of meaning it can be found in religious work, certainly in, in Buddhism, but also in Christianity and Judaism and Islam. There are some great insights which I think have been forgotten. I think we're sort of living in a hedonist era where people believe mistakenly that what we all really want is a good time. But in fact, and we do want a good time. The book has a lot to say about pleasure. And sometimes, interestingly, suffering is intertwined with pleasure. But that's not all we want. We want other things. Your life as you framed it out, here you are doing a podcast. And you know nobody held a gun against your head to do it. You volunteered to do it. It involves work. It involves preparation. It involves struggle. What people miss is that work and preparation and struggle are valuable ends to themselves. They're part of what people view as a valuable way to live their lives. So there's an issue here that I puzzled on long and hard reading the book, which is you argue in that pursuing happiness does not make us happy. As I say, an idea that can be traced back to John Stuart Mill, and that happiness is only achieved when it's a byproduct of other things that you might be searching for, like, like meaning in your life. But yet, I also think that, and I take this from the behavioral economists, because we are trying to traverse a 21st century world with a prehistorically evolved brain, in many ways, we have to work quite hard to avoid doing things which are self-defeating, which, which don't make us happy. How do we deal with that? I, it's not just a kind of you know Socratic idea that, that a life that doesn't involve reflection is not a, a life fully lived. It's more that we have to work at it because otherwise yeah. we just end up doing things which aren't great for us. I think you're right that there's a tension here. I think trying to be happy is a mistake. But I also think you're right that to some extent we have to be thoughtful about how we live our lives because the modern world has set traps in front of us. One obvious example is the incredibly rich environment of entertainment and social media, which is you know perfectly crafted to capture our attention. So if we are not mindful about it, we, or at least me, could spend hours scrolling through Twitter or scrolling through Facebook 
or on streaming videos, YouTube. This stuff is built to capture us. And if after doing so, after spending hours in this, I felt what a great way to spend hours. I'm such a, you know, I feel so proud of myself. Well, then there wouldn't be a problem. But the problem is, I think we recognize it's kind of a, a lousy way to spend our time. So yeah, it's as if I'm saying, you know, if you want to be healthy, don't obsess too much about food. But you do have to obsess enough about food to avoid eating delicious junk food all the time. And what you're talking about, sort of from the standpoint of a meaningful life, we are surrounded by the equivalent of delicious junk food. Now, I want to come back to that idea because you're you're moving there towards, it seems to me, some notion of the importance of balance. And I want to come back to that because... That's an idea. A number of the authors that you quote in your book, Dan Gilbert, Jonathan Haidt, they, they've emphasized the importance of balance as the kind of key to the life well lived. But before we do that, I want to take a couple of themes from the book a bit further. So the first is effort, kind of effort that is good for you, effort that makes life better for you. In the book, you kind of package that and you identify what is it about effort that makes it satisfying. Tell us more about that. It's such a puzzle. Because, you know, psychology doesn't have many laws, but there's one of them that's called the law of least effort, which basically says any creature when trying to pursue a goal would do it in the easiest way possible. Effort, you you give up valuable time, you give up valuable energy. So, you know, if there's something in front of a dog and a dog wants it, a dog will go in a straight path. And for the most part, it's true of people. We try to reduce effort, except when we don't. And that's the puzzle. And, you know, so I spend an inordinate amount of time on crossword puzzles. I don't do it well enough to, you know, to make it an, uh, an attractive feature of myself. It doesn't draw in the mates. It just do it because I like doing it. And it's kind of a puzzle as to what kind of itch that scratches. And there's some candidate answers involving, in part, a feeling of mastery. It feels good to be good at something. And in part, My book makes contact with the wonderful literature on flow. So flow is this idea from uh, the psychologist sadly passed away a few months ago, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. And Csikszentmihalyi points out that people are often have the most fulfilling moments when they're in a state of difficulty and effort and struggle, which he calls a flow state where you're immersed in something. And his examples are often physical, like rock climbers. Sometimes they're like musicians or writers or poets, but there are people who, professionals at this, who immerse themselves and they lose themselves. You know you're in a state of flow when, you know, time goes by and you don't notice it. When you forget to pick up the kids, you forget to eat, you just lose yourself. And it's a funny state because it's not the same as simple physical pleasure. Flow is difficult. You're working at it. But something about how our minds are wired up, and we could talk a little bit about why it works this way, is such that the right amount of effort and struggle, it just really tickles us. And it's difficult to get there. Some people live their whole lives without any flow. But when you're there, it's somehow wondrous. Yeah, know, I, I find the science all this fascinating. So first, this kind of, the book's called The Sweet Spot, but this this sweet spot, which is something has got to be effortful enough to be engaging and for us to have a sense of satisfaction from achieving it, but not so effortful that it's completely exhausting and defeating. And the genius, for example, of video games is that they are designed, aren't they? So that every time you go up a level, you hit that spot. It's just enough harder to to motivate you, but it's not so much harder that you kind of give up and do something else. 
That's right. That's right. Csikszentmihalyi says flow lies in between boredom and anxiety. You know, too easy, you get bored. If it's too difficult for you, you get anxious. And you're speaking to a little bit of a paradox in the field of flow and kind of almost a counter argument, which is Csikszentmihalyi described a life full of flow as the best life possible. And in his book on a topic, which is this wonderful book, he gives these stories of people who spend their eight hours a day caught up in some graceful physical or emotional or intellectual activity, just lost in time. It makes it sound like the best life ever. But you can get the equivalent of a flow state in a video game, for instance. And video games are perfectly aligned to capture us just the right level, something as simple as Tetris. It's just a certain level of difficulty that works just right. And this kind of flow, which really captures us, isn't what we step back and say, wow, I'm really proud of myself for spending the last four hours playing Tetris. No, I think the other thing about effort that really interests me, Paul, is, is that we often don't we talk about effort and ability. I don't know if it was the same when you were at school, but I, I, got, I used to get rated in, in our, my school report every year, and they give you a score for ability and a score for effort. So you got the ability was kind of, I think, one to nine, and effort was A to E. So one A was the best and nine E was the worst. And many years later, came across the work of Carol Dweck and her idea of growth mindsets and, and her research, which demonstrates that if children feel that the, the key determinant of whether they succeed is effort, they are much more likely to keep going in the face of adversity. Whereas if they are told that their achievement is based on ability, when they find something hard, they kind of give up because they think, well, I run out of ability. So effort's quite an egalitarian concept, it seems to me, because we can all we can all make an effort. It is. There are people who could, you know, I, I talk in my book how I ran a marathon long ago. And there are people who ran a marathon, most people, much quicker than me and in much better shape. But I worked really hard on it. Now, that's not going to win me any medals, and it probably shouldn't. But what it means is, from the standpoint of me valuing the experience, that matters a lot. Anything that you later view as meaningful, I don't think there are any exceptions, involves difficulty and struggle and the possibility of failure. And so in that regard, effort is the kind of, you know, secret sauce that could turn turn most anything into something valuable. If you're so good at it, you do it without effort, well, do something else or make it harder. Because if it's easy for you, if you're the sort of person, and I know some people like this, who could roll out of bed and run a marathon that day, well, marathons aren't going to do it for you. Hmm. You've mentioned meaning, Paul, and that was the thing I wanted to come to next. So uh, another chapter of your book explores explanations for why we choose pain and suffering in relation to the importance of meaning in our lives. Say more about that. Yeah, I, this was the chapter in my book that I found the hardest to write because so much that's written about meaning and what meaning is, it's not even wrong. It's just, you know, it's just sort of crunchy, hand-wavy stuff that is neither right nor wrong and doesn't capture really anything of interest. But there is some research that asks people, what do you find meaningful? What counts as meaning? At least not in some abstract sense that they're not philosophers or theologians, just ask people, what do you find a meaningful activity? What do you find a meaningful pursuit? And when you ask them that way, you find out certain things. A meaningful pursuit is something that involves struggle and difficulty. It makes a difference in the world. Could be a positive difference, could even be a negative difference. 
it it is something which extends over a long period of time. It's often something socially valued. You know, climbing Mount Everest is a meaningful activity for many people or any sort of difficulty, difficult challenge. And it is rewarding. We talked about the two different types of happiness. And for the second type of happiness where I ask you, think about it, how good is your life going? Whether or not there's meaningful activities in it will have a lot of weight into how you answer that. And thinking about it this way, you could answer some sort of puzzle. So one puzzle I've long been interested in is why do people say they like having kids? Why do people look back and say, I've had kids and I don't regret it? When the data suggests that many people, it's kind of a toss-up, their lives would be happier without kids, that children are a source of financial strain and marital strain. When children are young, day-to-day, there's a terrible drop in happiness. There's also a drop in how happy you are with your spouse and how happy you are if you're with, with other sort of short-term things. But I don't think people who say that having kids, and I would kind of say this for myself, I have two, two sons, two adult sons who I, I love very much. I don't think they would say, oh, I'm glad I had my kids because they boosted up my hedonic pleasure. What they say is it was meaningful. It was purpose. It, it, it gave purpose to my life. It felt like it mattered. And this is more this sort of second, richer type of happiness. And that's meaning. So I think everybody would accept, or most people at least would accept this idea of the importance of, of meaning. And, and we find it another, I mean, I'm, one of the areas I do a lot of work on is, is work and people's satisfaction at work. And it turns out that having a sense of purpose and meaning on your work is an important element of work satisfaction. But also, I'm interested in your view about balance and the importance of balance in life. And in this, I'm tempted to talk about self-determination theory, which I know is a kind of a core idea in a lot of positive psychology. And that is that at heart, we have these three fundamental motivational urges for mastery, for autonomy, and for connectedness. And I'm interested, in, to what extent, Paul, do you subscribe to the view that, that, that in the end, the sweet spot is about finding a way of balancing the different needs that we have? So I do think this, in some way, the problem we all face when trying to live a good life, trying to live a life that we're happy with and fulfilled with, is finding proper balance. Now, we can say proper balance between what? Those lists of three things that you gave are a perfectly good list. And I think that those are things, and they're often in somewhat of tension with each other, that you may want to attend to. In my book, I give kind of a different list. So I talk about, on the one hand, simple pleasure. So, you know, it's a really hot day and you drink a really cold glass of water. You know, you scratch where it itches. You know, sexual pleasure, pleasure of food, the pleasure of being with people you love. But also, there's morality. There's being a good person. And there, as anybody who, who is a good person in the slightest way knows, they're often intention. Often the right thing to do is not the fun thing to do. Then there's a purpose and meaning that we've been talking about. There may be other things. I have colleagues of mine who talk about the value of psychological variety, of having a life that's rich in a sense that in, it includes a lot. Some people talk about spirituality and transcendence. So the project we each have is finding the proper balance. I think the answer is going to differ for every person. But I also think that all of these ingredients probably have to be present. Now, I'm glad that you said that these things can be intention because one of the things that I 
kind of push back against when I read positive psychology, for example, is the sense that all good things can go together. And I'm afraid I'm kind of more with Freud on this in that, you know, Freud argues that parts of our personality are perpetually at war with each other. Now, I know a lot of Freud's work has been discredited, but I think that basic idea that our different desires are at war with each other is a powerful one. And, that, and I guess what I'm turning to here, Paul, is is that maybe part of the reason we choose suffering is because in a sense, there is just something about being a human being that is difficult. And that in a sense, we are resigned to that. And the need to find meaning is partly about that resignation, that it is almost impossible ever to get to a point when the bits of our personality are not at war with each other. No, that seems right. I have my beef with various positive psychologists and the feel altogether. And I think you put your finger on one problem, which is they're so relentlessly cheerful as if everything is all going to work out once you buy their books and watch their TED Talks and take their advice. And the truth is, life is, is tragic in a sense that we cannot get everything we want. I think to some extent, as an evolutionary psychology type, I think we've evolved to be tremendously unsettled because if we were content, what good is that? What good is it to sort of stand pat? We're always going to try to make things better. And the only way to make a creature that always may, tries to make things better is never have the creature be too happy. So we're not too happy. We, we suffer from what's called a hedonic treadmill, which is after a while, something which makes us happy bores us and we're not happy with it anymore. We're, we're stuck with motivations for morality and meaning that are at odds with our pleasure and our happiness. So, yeah, we will try to find a sweet spot, but it's not as if there's some way that we could just perfectly maximize everything and then we ascend to heaven. <laughs> to some extent, I think we got to be realists and say our psychological lives are always going to have, have limits. A very simple tension is that it's probably good for a person to love other people, but to love children, to love their partners, to love their friends. Love is... An attachment is wonderful, but you don't need a psychologist to tell you this. It comes with terrible risk. It comes with risk of terrible, terrible pain. If it didn't come with that risk, it wouldn't be love. Yeah, and you quote Zadie Smith, who makes that point very eloquently. Yeah, she has wonderful discretion. I wish I could do it from memory about children, but she ends up quoting a condolence letter, which had the phrase, it hurts as much as it's worth. And I love that phrase. Yeah. I put that alongside one of my other favorite quotes about, about having children, which is John Updike once said, the thing about children is they give us the courage we need to defend them, which I think is a lovely idea for people who haven't had children and think, well, I would never throw myself in front of a moving bullet to defend anybody else. Well, no, when you have children, it kind of changes you in that way. Yeah. I got to round us off, though, with a Kingsley Amos quote. It's no wonder people are so terrible when they started off as children. <laughs> There's a thing that you just refer to a few times in the book, Paul, and it intrigued me. And I almost wanted to say to you, how about making this a subject of a future book? Because I'm so fascinated by it. And this is, you're not religious, but creeping out of your book at various points is a recognition that actually religious faith makes life easier in many ways. It makes suffering more meaningful. It helps with the issue of meaning. It helps with the issue of death, which is not something you write about much in the book, which, however, I think is heavily implicated in, as it were, why it is we often choose suffering, because because in the sense the human condition is just one of the suffering. 
how big a hole do you think it leaves in our lives, the, the retreat of religion? It's a really good good question. When when I finished my book, I, I got a, an article in the Wall Street Journal and about it. And immediately when I published it, you get you get emails. And the first email I got, the very first one, was a woman who was aptly furious with me. And she said, you're all in favor of suffering. You don't know anything. You don't know what it's like to live in chronic pain. She described it at length, told me I'm an idiot several times. And she misunderstood me because I think she's right. I think chosen suffering of the sort we're talking about with effort and meaning and pursuit is wonderful. But there's so much unchosen suffering in life. Being assaulted, the death of a child, you lose your job, your house burns down. And how do we cope with that? I don't think that's good. That that lacks all of the feelings of autonomy and control. Unchosen suffering is awful. And here comes religion, though. And we actually have laboratory research on this, but the conclusion won't be surprising. If you're religious, you are much more likely to believe that this unchosen suffering carries a purpose. Not your purpose. You didn't do it yourself. But there's a plan afoot. It's for a reason. And every religion worth its salt, every religion that I, that I know of, maybe job number one is explaining suffering, explaining why do people suffer. And religion is powerful in that way. You know, and then there's a specific case of death. And religion can come to the rescue there as well and say, you don't really die. Those you love didn't really die. Yeah, no, well, I think that's absolutely right, Paul, that, that religion offers a meaning for unchosen suffering. We might understand what that meaning is, but it says to us there is ultimately some meaning for it. And it, exactly as you say, if in the end the universal deepest suffering that we have as human beings is to know that we will one day die, and even worse, that the world will go on without us. <laughs> yes, what a thought. Religion too makes that bearable. And I feel that, and I'm I'm with Ernest Becker, who wrote a wonderful book called The Denial of Death, about this very poignant book, because he wrote it while he was dying. But he argued, and he was a kind of slightly from a Freudian perspective, but he argued that a huge amount of human mania was driven by our denial of death, our inability to face up to death. And the question I ask myself is whether it is possible, really, for both individuals or for societies as a whole, cultures as a whole, to find a way of facing up to death in the absence of God. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, this brings us back to what you were saying before about tragedy, about the sort of our tragic fates. As somebody who's an atheist, I have a lot of respect for religion. I, as a psychologist, I have to have respect for religion and what it does and its power it has over people. But to some extent, I think a lot of religious faith is, is an attempt to deny a tragic truth, a series of tragic truths that bad things happen to good people, that everybody dies, that there's no cosmic force for justice, no such thing as karma, so that any justice that there is has to be our own creation. And so it's an attempt to deny certain tragic facts. Could we do without religion? Some of us do. I think sometimes we can live and face tragic facts head on. But that takes me to another pretty interesting idea in your book and a final question, which is, that one of the habits that you explore quite early on in the book is that we quite like kind of putting our toe in the water of suffering, don't huh. we? That yes. a lot of people, surprisingly large number of people, enjoy sadomasochistic sex, which is a form of having pain and almost violence, but in a way where which is not like actually being kind of assaulted. 
Similarly, people like to watch films that are violent or tragic or cry in films. But that's completely different from actually something terrible and tragic happening in your life. What's the reason, Paul, that you offer for this this desire we have to kind of put our toe in the waters of unchosen suffering? Yeah, it illustrates a couple of themes that we've been talking about. It illustrates that you have a sweet spot in a kind of a different way, which is we all have different tolerances for this kind of suffering. Many, many people seem to really enjoy reading about BDSM or sadomasochistic sex. Far fewer enjoy participating in it. And then once you dip your toe into that water, there's different degrees in which you could participate in it, and people differ. Some people like to go to really scary movies, really horrific movies. Others like to get a little, little tickle of it, but not too much. I think we all, everything from spicy foods, we all have our sort of degree of tolerance. It also illustrates control. Control is very important. The same experience could be a nightmare. It could be horrible, worst of your life. If it's out of your hands while under control, it could be something you enjoy deeply. So why? Why do we like this? I think there are many reasons for it, and a lot depends on the kind of thing we're talking about. I think spicy foods has a bit of a different explanation in horror movies. But what they have in common is there's a feeling of mastery in that you were controlling it and you were putting yourself into a difficult situation and there's a pleasure to being able to do something difficult. I think in part, it's a desire for exploration, to see what something new is like, to sort of say, this is what it's like when things go bad. There's even social powers of this sort of thing. A lot of the sort of painful things we do, we do with other people to share in the pain or to broadcast how tough we are, to sometimes there's a cry for help. I think if you you think of something as sort of seemingly simple as, I don't know, eating some really spicy chicken vindaloo or watching a scary movie, you illustrate in, in this all sorts of really interesting human desires that are that are anything but simple. And and it connects to issues of autonomy and self-determination and control and purpose and meaning. Well, that's a lovely way of finishing the conversation about your book, The Sweet Spot, Suffering, Pleasure and the Key to the Good Life, which I would say is wonderfully insightful but also perhaps paradoxically highly enjoyable to read well thank you now we're going to end this conversation paul because you've said that you're a crossword enthusiast and and this is a good example of your thesis that we put ourselves through the agonies of spending minutes sometimes longer staring at a clue and not getting it for the brush of satisfaction we get when we solve it and so i'm going to give you my favorite crossword clue and if you get it right then those will be the final words of the podcast. And if you don't, then I will. So the final words. Extraordinary tension. So here we are. The answer is two words, nine, four. And the clue is gegs, G-E-G-S. G-E-G-S. Uh, nine and four. So it's, um, it's somebody's eggs. I guess the four is eggs. It is. What's the first one then? Oh, Gregory's it's eggs. scrambled, Paul. Oh, my God. Scrambled eggs. Oh, my God. Oh. Suffer, Paul. Suffer. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now... Thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. 
We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.